Thank you, and you may be seated. This is a great-looking bunch down front, and we are so excited for you and so proud of you, and, and uh, what a great show of support from family and friends tonight. And uh, I'm Mark Canarney, pastor here at Liberty First Baptist Church, and I've served as the, pa the president of the Liberty Ministerial Association, and uh, we are so excited to have baccalaureate again. We haven't had it in three years now. And so uh, this, this is a wonderful time together, and we just want our graduates to know how proud we are of you. We love you, and uh, most importantly, the Lord loves you. And so um, I'm, I'm grateful that we can gather like this tonight as community uh, to worship and praise the Lord and also to celebrate with these graduates tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we give you praise. There's none like you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we can look to ourselves and we can look to the world. But Lord, nobody or nothing can do for us what you can. And we are grateful for that, dear Lord. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And Lord, I just ask tonight, Lord, that, that you would move in this place. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And God, that when we leave this place, Lord, we'll do what we wish we would have done 100 years from now. Lord, move in and out of this place. Change lives for your glory. May you be honored and glorified, we pray. In the wonderful, matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Would y'all stand with us as we begin worship tonight? You're not done 
good things are still to come Oh, I believe If I'm not dead, you're not done And greater things are still to come Oh, I believe If I'm not dead, you're not done Greater things are still to come Oh, I believe If I'm not dead, you're not done Greater things are still to come This is my testimony From dead to life Grace we wrote my story, I'll testify By Jesus Christ the righteous, I'm justified This is my testimony, this is my testimony This is my testimony Gideon's International, and our ministry is to place God's Word in over 200 countries. Uh, the book, the Bible that you received tonight is the most important book in the world, and it contains information about how you can make the most important decision in your life. You graduates, graduates are to be commended and congratulated on reaching this milestone and you're going to be making a lot of decisions where to go to school where to work where to live but none compares with the decision what you're going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ hopefully all of you if you have not already made that decision you'll make that decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior thank you
children then you hear your children now you are the same God you are the same God you answer prayers back then and you will answer now you are the same God you are the same God Kingdom, and your 
Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for allowing us to come together tonight and worship you. God, to celebrate the journey for these graduates, God. And the one of the past 18 years has been wonderful. God, you've brought them so far in the same light. It's only just beginning. So God, we send them out, we encourage them, we celebrate them tonight. But more importantly, God, may they know that they are loved by a king. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your promises. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Amen. Well, I'm Bobby Tyler. I'm the pastor over at Flat Rock in Liberty, and uh, I get the joy to introduce our speaker. I've known... uh, I've known Dr. Hale for 20, 20 years or so, and he's came and he's preached several revivals for me. And as a matter of fact, he spoke this morning at Flat Rock, and God really moved. And so graduates, you're in for a treat. Those that came with you, you're in for a treat. God has used uh, Brother Steve. I call him Steve. He's my friend. And Dr. Hale in so many areas. He's literally preached to thousands all over this country. He's a staff evangelist at First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. And he literally travels the country. He's he spoken and done similes, uh, be the winner, and literally school after school after school over all this country. And so it's just been a joy of mine to see God raise up an evangelist to teach and preach the Word of God. And, and I'll just tell you, God is using Steve in a great way, way to reach this world for Jesus. And so I'm going to get out of the way because I know you didn't come to hear me. You came to hear Dr. Steve. And I just want to say... Parents, grandparents, if you could do anything, I know you've invested a lot of time, a lot of energy, and he didn't pay me to say this, but I'll tell you, I've heard many of sermons that he's had over here. I want to encourage you, after service, just grab something and maybe deposit a truth into these guys' lives. You'll never know, you'll literally never know the deposit of truth, a book, a CD, into these graduates. And so I just want to encourage you. Dr. Harold, come lead us tonight. Thank you so much be and um, I commend these pastors in your area for putting together uh, this type of service tonight so uh, thank you pastors for the vision that you have and I'm certainly honored to to be with you tonight and um, I want to first of all just congratulate each of these graduates for attaining this milestone of completing your academic requirements and uh, moving on to the next chapter of your life Uh, you can officially now close the book on your high school career and look with anticipation for the next phase of your life. Uh, Most likely the next part of your journey is going to determine God's going to give you direction for your future and for the career that he wants you to pursue and then perhaps even bring clarity as to the person who's going to ultimately join you in this journey for the rest of your life, namely your spouse, your future husband or wife. So to say that the days that lie ahead are impactful and significant uh, really would be an understatement. So I want to talk to you tonight about some timeless principles, biblical principles, that if you'll embrace them, uh, you'll be far ahead of the game, far ahead of the curve. And because these principles have withstood the test of time, to ignore them it would be to your own detriment. The story is told about a college freshman who was not too bright. In fact, he was hovering between a high-class F and a low-class D. And so uh, he was taking this course in zoology, and he knew that if he did not pass this course, that he was going to be out of school, and 
in the disgraces of his father, loses deferment in the army. So he stayed up all night studying for this exam. Now, if you know anything about zoology, you know that you don't call a bluebird a bluebird or a blackbird a blackbird. You have to use the scientific names when referring to these creatures. So this young man stayed up all night committing to memory the names of these various birds, walked into class that morning fully confident that he had adequately prepared. But as he sat down, he noticed in front of the blackboard there was a perch with 10 birds lined up across. There was a little sack covering each bird's body. And then the professor stepped to the front of the room and he said, now class, I want you to identify these 10 birds by the appearance of their legs. Well, the young man knew that he was in deep trouble. He had not prepared like that. And so he became rather angry. In fact, he became irate. He stood up and slammed his books down on the desk and he said, this is a stupid exam. You are a stupid professor and this is a stupid university. And about that time, he walked out of the room, but when he got to the door, the professor said, young man, hold it right there. What's your name? The boy pulled his pants up to his kneecaps, and he said, you guess, professor, you guess. <laughs> Listen, when it comes to your success, the Bible takes a lot of guesswork out of it. Listen to Joshua 1, 8 and 9. It says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night to observe, to do according to all that is written therein. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So God is tying your future success to your relationship with his word because it's in God's word that he's going to speak to you. He's going to instruct you and reveal to you and direct you. Jeremiah 29, 11, probably you have this verse. If you don't have it, you need to highlight it in your Bible. God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you to give you a future and a hope. Another way of saying it is God saying, I, have the, I know the dreams that I have for you, says the Lord. Dreams to prosper you, not harm you, to give you a future and a hope. You know, when David had a dream, he could conquer Goliath, but when he lost his dream, he was conquered by his own lust. When Samson had a dream, he could win many battles, but when he lost his dream, he could not win his battle with Delilah. When Solomon had a dream, he was the wisest man on earth. When he lost his dream, he could not control his passion for women. When Saul had a dream, he won many battles, but when he lost his dream, he was conquered by his own jealousy. When Noah had a dream, he could build an ark, but when he lost his dream, he became drunk. When Peter had a dream, he could preach to thousands and see 3,000 saved, but when he lost his dream, he could not even stand before a little girl and admit that he knew Jesus. When Elijah had a dream, he could pray and call down fire from heaven that consumed the altar. When he lost his dream, he ran from Queen Jezebel. Guys, it's the dream. The dream for your life that motivates you, will drive you to excel. And, uh, but there's an overarching principle, a truth, that's the key to everything else we're going to talk about tonight. In other words, this is the fundamental premise upon which your dreams should be built. It's found in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. You want to take your Bibles and turn there. Jesus talks about having the right perspective on life because if your worldview or philosophy of life is inaccurate, then the lens through which you look at life and approach life and how you interpret your circumstances will be out of focus with God's will. And subsequently, your response to life itself will be inaccurate. In other words, if you're solving a math problem and you begin by determining that 2 plus 2 equals 5 
then all the following calculations will be incorrect. And in the same way, if your core values, the fa your foundation are out of alignment with God's will, God's word, then you're going to experience failed relationships, failed expectations, and broken dreams. So in other words, if the foundation of your life is out of alignment with God's plan and God's will, then you're going to go through life always looking for fulfillment elsewhere. So listen to Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. So Jesus is describing for us two men who had opposite perspectives on life. They approached life differently, but interestingly enough, they both had the same dream. In other words, both guys were interested in building a house. That is, they wanted a life of significance. They wanted to accomplish something in the world. They wanted to make their mark in the world. They wanted to be difference makers. So they shared the same dream of wanting to be successful. Secondly, they both went to the same church because Jesus says both guys heard these sayings of mine. So Jesus portrays himself as being the preacher, which means it was the perfect sermon. And um, so they're hearing Jesus listening to the same sermon at the same time, in the same place, the same preacher. They were conservative and evangelical in their faith because they're listening to the living word, preach the written word, and you cannot get a better word than that word. So get the picture, they're sitting in their pews with their Bibles open, and they're listening and willing to hear the words of Jesus. Obviously, they both have an affinity or an appetite for the things of God. They're both attracted to the people of God and the house of God. The third thing they have in common, and that is they lived in the same neighborhood. And the reason we know that's the case is because the same storm impacted both their houses, which means they both lived in the same vicinity. And the final similarity is they experienced the same storm or the same struggles in life. Now that's where the comparison ends and the contrast begins. Because Jesus clearly tells us that one man was wise. The other guy was a fool. And the distinguishing trait between being a fool and being wise was in the foundation. The wise man built his life on the rock. The fool built his life on the sand. Now keep in mind, both men shared the same dream. They both dreamed of being successful, having a life of significance. And everyone here wants to be successful, right? I mean, who wants to be a failure? Wishful thinking, good intentions, and visionary dreaming do not produce success. The wise man or woman understands that whatever else he does in life will only be as strong as the foundation upon which he's built, which means that it requires time and inconvenience and sacrifice and attention to detail because building on a rock is tough to drill through. It's expensive, and it must be in alignment with the vision that you plan to put on top of it. The fool, on the other hand, he was too lazy to put in the required effort to build upon the right foundation. The wise man understood that having a foundation on the rock would be demanding, 
It'd be an imposition on his schedule. It would mean sacrificing short-term pleasure for long-term benefits. But the one thing that made the difference between the two foundations was obedience. Verse 24 says, The wise man heard these sayings of mine and obeyed them. The fool heard the same sayings, but did not obey them. And it's only when the word of God is obeyed that the blessing of God is activated. Students, listen, the one way you can tell the difference between a fool and a wise man is in his or her decisions. The wise person consults God in prayer and searches God's word for advice, but the fool does none of that. Uh, the Bible's, in fact, the fool was a practical atheist. And the reason we can say that is because Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That means it is possible for a person to be in church every Sunday, listening to the word of God. Uh, but the difference between being a fool and a wise person is in his obedience. And the fool was a practical atheist. Because that means he was living his life and making his decisions as if there was no God. To state the obvious, sand represents human wisdom. Rock represents truth or God's point of view. And the Bible says there are two kinds of wisdom. One descends from above, divine wisdom. The other is earthly, sensual, and demonic, James says. So there's a lot in the Bible that addresses these two perspectives, especially in the book of Proverbs. But we got to move on before doing so one important observation and that is it was when the storm came that the adversities the hardships the challenges the struggles in life that's when the foundation of these two men was exposed Jesus describes the storm by saying the rain descended the floods came and the winds blew so this was not a little rain shower uh, this was a torrential downpour the flooding the high velocity winds all describe a hurricane so the storm revealed what they were trusting in. And since all of us sitting here tonight are going to encounter storms, that means you need to be sure that you're building on the right foundation. Your foundation determines your future. And the key to the foundation is your obedience to God's word. And so in the time we have remaining, I want to mention five detours the devil would like to use to try to get your foundation out of alignment with God's word. And um, again, remember Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. So God is saying, you're in my thoughts. You're on my mind. And the stuff I'm thinking about you, it's good stuff. It's not bad stuff. Why? Because God says there's a piece of history out there with your name on it. It's filled with optimism and hope. But here's the thing, guys. Satan opposes God's plan, which is designed to bless you. But Satan also has a plan to curse you and defeat you by detouring you away from the destiny that God has ordained for your life. So I want to mention these five detours briefly. They may seem innocent and harmless on the surface, which is what the devil wants you to think because he is the deceiver. He shows us the fun side of sin, right? The Bible says sin does give pleasure for a season, but only for a season. And once the season is over, Satan never shows you up front the end game, the consequences of your actions before it's too late. The first detour is just a cynical, rotten, rebellious, negative, poor attitude. Every one of us here is carrying some baggage from the past. 
And sometimes that excess baggage from the past can find expression in a rotten attitude in the present. The underlying question is, how does anybody become a winner in a world full of losers? Uh, some of you may come from broken homes, had a dysfunctional upbringing, and you might be thinking, Steve, I've been abused, neglected, rejected, I've been made to feel like a nobody, not even out of the starting blocks yet, and I'm defeated before I've even begun. And I would challenge that. I would say, no, you're not. It just means you're an underdog in a dog-eat-dog world. Underdogs win every day. They win politically, athletically, academically, socially, and professionally. But the key to being a winner really is attitude. If the attitude is good, the product will be good. If the attitude is rotten, the product will be rotten. Two kinds of students these days, those who are smart and those who think they're smart. The difference really is attitude. You know, some students are committed to a standard of excellence, and others are just satisfied with merely getting by and embracing an attitude of mediocrity. For some of you guys, you saw high school as a prison, and you were the inmate, and now you're being pardoned, and you're finding your lease on life out in front of you. But here's what you've got to understand. With more freedom comes more responsibility. Choices do have consequences. And the most important choices in life are made during these critical strategic teenage years. Uh, these next four years of your lives are going to be game-changing years. Because for most of you, the choices you make are going to determine the trajectory of your life for many years to come. You're going to encounter distractions designed to detour you from your God-ordained destiny in life. No born losers, only born choosers. But the choices that you guys make from this day forward are consequential. In other words, you're crossing the threshold to a whole new level of maturity, which for some of you may require an attitude adjustment. Your track record in high school may have not been that great. Your academic performance in high school may have been lower than it should have been. Your reputation in high school may have not been as desirable as you wished it would have been. You can't go back and change the past. But what you can do is hit the reset button. Because just because you fail doesn't mean that you're a failure. Just because you lose doesn't mean that you're a loser. It's what you do with that failure. It's what you do with that loss that makes the difference. And so the challenge tonight is to start afresh with God's power and God's presence going before you. It all starts with attitude. A victim mentality permeates our culture tonight where everybody, it seems, in America feels entitled to a free lunch. They blame their past. They blame their parents for not being where they want to be in life. And that's stinking thinking because it's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you that makes the difference because what happens in you helps you to respond to what happens to you. And that's what we call attitude. The Bible says, let this mind be in you. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, set your mind, your attitude on things above and not things on the earth. The Bible says, as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. That means you're a product of your thought life and your attitudes. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, be not conformed to this world, that is this world's value system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your attitude. Why? That you might prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God or plan of God for your life. So our minds have been contaminated by sin and influenced by this world's value system, which means there needs to be a mental reprogramming of the mind, which requires discovering God's, which requires time in God's Word to discover what His perfect, good, and acceptable 
plan is for our lives, the primary way this transformation occurs is by making it a priority to daily spend time alone with God in prayer and in his word. You know, back in the day, uh, going to a circus was uh, something everybody seemed to look forward to. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But decades ago, the Dallas Cowboys were the most dominating team in NFL football franchise history. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Cowboys, when they first formed their team with the dream of one day becoming a winner, they did not go to other football teams to see how they were doing it. But instead, they went to the boardrooms of IBM, Xerox, and General Motors. They met with the leading executives in America. They asked this question. They said, what do you look for in success? Without exception, the common denominator, the leading men in America said, we look for integrity. We look for a high standard of morality. And we look for a respect toward authority. All three of those qualities deal with attitude. The personnel directors of America's top 100 companies were asked to name the number one reason for firing an employee. The number one reason was a poor attitude. That means that attitude can be more important than aptitude. A shoe salesman was sent by his company to a remote island to start a new shoe business. He got over there and he sent a message back to his company and said, cancel the order for shoes. Nobody over here wears shoes. Another salesman got over to this island and he sent a message back to his company and he said, double the order for shoes from 10,000 to 20,000 pair because he said, everybody over here needs shoes. The obvious difference was their attitude. Detour number two, hanging out with the wrong crowd. It's closely related to your attitude, but I can tell you this. The crowd you hang around is going to determine the direction your life takes. In the same way, attitude determines action. Action determines direction, and direction determines destiny or accomplishment. You see, it's the crowd you hang out with, not the circumstances you encounter, that makes the difference in your life. Good circumstances with bad friends results in defeat. Bad circumstances with good friends results in victory mentioned a circus a moment ago those of you that have been to a circus you don't find them around too often anymore but you'll see an elephant oftentimes tied to a little wooden stake makes no sense how the strongest creature on the planet would be held captive by this small wooden stake but here's the reason that huge elephant when he was just a little baby was tied to an immovable iron stake And no matter how hard he tried, he simply could not move the stake. Yet now he's strong and grown. He continues to believe, though, that he cannot get free because he sees that stake in the ground. In other words, that stake represents a mental point of defeat. He's living in the past. He's become a prisoner of his own misperceptions and attitudes. He remembers how it used to be when he was younger. He's trapped by his past. In the same way, lots of young people today have bad memories of something that happened to them in their past and their mental faculties and brain chemistry have been assaulted. The stake in the ground that perhaps is holding some of you down may be a parent who told you that you'll never amount to anything in life. The mental stake for others of you may be in those at school who bullied you and made fun of you And that's playing over and over in your mind. The stake for others may have been sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional or verbal abuse. And like that circus elephant, he never maximized his potential because his mind was programmed by a negative past and he was restricted and confined 
from what he was created to be. He'd been trained to remember the negative experience of when he was held captive by that immovable iron stake and now it only requires a little wooden stake to hold him down because that wooden stake now is a trigger that's holding him captive. All of us sitting here have a history. And some of you might say, man, I've, just, I've already just made such a mess out of my life. You know the good news? We have a God who can take your mess and turn it into his message. You think about Moses who was handicapped and he said, I'm of slow speech. And yet God used him to liberate a nation and from heaven's throne gave him the Ten Commandments. Joseph was handicapped. He was a foreigner, an ex-convict, fresh out of prison. He didn't know the language, but God made him the most powerful man on earth. Paul was handicapped. He was, had a thorn in the flesh, a criminal background. He was a murderer, and yet he wrote most of the New Testament. Humanly speaking, Jesus was handicapped. I mean, he was born into a hated minority called the Jews. He lived in political oppression. He had a scandalous verdict. The institutional church of his day said that he was a demonized lunatic, heretic, and a drunk. The state said that he was a revolutionary and a traitor. That's not exactly what you'd call an impressive resume. But Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And he proved it by rising from the dead. And guess what? When you become a Christian, receive Jesus into your life, you're joint heirs with Christ, which means that his victory becomes your victory. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. And that means people can just about tell the kind of person you are, but the kind of crowd you hang out with. So I repeat, the kind of crowd you follow is going to determine the direction your life takes. So before you start following some crowd, you need to first of all find out which direction that crowd is headed because any dead fish can float with the current. Only a live fighting fish can swim against that current to make a difference. What I'm saying is with very little effort, anybody can be guilty, dirty, and rebellious. But if you're going to be a difference maker for the kingdom of God, you're going to be swimming upstream in a culture that's going downhill. You need to be sure that you have some good godly friends who are swimming beside you. Because Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. If one falls down, the other can help him up. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. The third detour is a poor work ethic, a slacker mentality. A sta Listen, a good work ethic is not going to go unnoticed. Proverbs 10.4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12.24, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13.4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. fat. Proverbs 15.19, The way of the lazy man is a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. Chapter 19, verse 15, laziness casts one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. Chapter 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow after autumn, so he begs during harvest and has nothing. Chapter 21, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to work. Do you get the idea that God is saying you need to have a good work ethic? You cannot read the Bible without acknowledging that God blesses and honors hard work. Success is not handed out to daydreamers or wishful thinkers. 
I think most of us would agree that embracing a good work ethic involves wisdom in making the best use of our time. In a landmark study, it was found that on any given day, teenagers will spend an average of nine hours on entertainment media. That's nine hours of streaming videos, playing games, texting, social media. And the study says the deception for teens is this. Two-thirds of the teens think that they can multitask while doing their homework. And the study said they simply can't. It gets in the way of their ability to concentrate and to synthesize information well. I think we can all agree that spending nine hours, a third of a day, playing video games and being on social media doesn't leave a whole lot of time to be productive in our work ethic. And by the way, work was given to Adam before sin ever entered the world. So work is not a part of the sinful curse that came upon the earth. Genesis 2.15, one of the first things God did with Adam, he gave him a job, a J-O-B. And he told him, cultivate the ground in the garden. In other words, be productive. The word cultivate means to produce more than what you started with. So in other words, don't be lazy. Don't embrace or be satisfied with mediocrity. Detour number four, and that is drugs and alcohol. Man, I could stand here and give one statistic after another, tell you one sad story after another. And without question, those ear-catching, eye-catching commercials on TV has to be those beer ads. They show us people with healthy, wealthy, happy faces, projecting some macho image, holding a beer, saying it does not get any better than this. The media says that if you want status and if you want popularity, this bud's for you. Some of you come from homes where the consumption of alcohol and drugs may have been the norm rather than the exception. So probably nothing I say is going to convince you of the high percentage of accidents and brain damage and health hazards caused by drugs and alcohol. As a young person, your brain is still developing. A lot of students think that they're invincible, but there is a reason. The Bible says don't even look upon wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly, for in the end it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. There's a reason the Bible says wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I'm going to refrain from bombarding you guys with a bunch of stats except to say that 400 homes every day in America are being destroyed because of alcohol. Eight million Americans out of every generation are dying due to alcohol. It's more destructive than the atomic bomb and the Holocaust combined. Alcohol is the leading cause of death in 16-year-olds, and it kills more teenagers, six and a half times more teenagers than all other drugs combined. And speaking of drugs, you know, God forbids sorcery associated with witchcraft, but the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia or pharmakos. It's where we get the word pharmacy. It's a reference to drugs. In other words, sorcery and drugs go hand in hand. When drugs were used in sorcery, it was for the purpose of opening a person up to occultic powers and introducing a person to a dark world of demonic activity. I think this poem about a heroine kind of puts the whole drug culture in perspective. 
says, so now, little man, you've grown tired of grass, LSD, acid, coke, and hash. And someone pretending to be a true friend said, I'll introduce you to Miss Heroin. Well, honey, before you start fooling with me, just let me inform you of how it will be. For I will seduce you and make you my slave. I've sent men much stronger than you to their grave. Oh, you think you could never become a disgrace and end up addicted to poppy seed waste? Well, you'll start inhaling me one afternoon. Take me into your arms very soon. And once I've entered deep down in your veins, the craving will nearly drive you insane. Oh, you'll need lots of money, as you've been told, for darling, I'm much more expensive than gold. You'll swindle your mother, and just for a buck, you'll turn into something vile and corrupt. You'll mug and steal for my narcotic charm and feel contentment when I'm in your arms. But the day when you realize the monster you've grown, you'll solemnly promise to leave me alone. But if you think you got the mystical knack, then, sweetie, just try getting me off your back. The vomit, the cramps, your gut tied in a knot, the jangling nerves screaming for one more shot, the hot chills, the cold sweat, the withdrawal pains can only be saved by my little white grains. There's no other way. There's no need to look. For down deep inside, you'll know that you're hooked. You'll desperately run to the pusher and then you'll welcome me back to your arms once again. And when you return, just as I foretold, I know that you'll give me your body and soul. You'll give up your morals, your conscience, your heart, and you'll be mine till death do us part. That poem is just a reminder that you don't use drugs. Drugs use you. You form a habit, and then the habit forms you. Think about this, guys. You know, if you lose a leg, you can get in a wheelchair and still be productive. If you break an arm, you can wear a cast, and eventually it will heal. If you lose an eye or an ear, you have another one in reserve. But if you lose your mind, you have to scorch your brain through drugs. You don't have another one in reserve. The fifth detour premarital sex. The reason I say that is because apart from drug addiction, there is nothing that has the potential of devastating your life more completely than premarital sexual activity. Now, depending on the latest research that you access, anywhere from 40 to 55 percent of today's students are sexually active before graduating from high school. And as you might suspect, those numbers go up once they enter college. In our world of moral relativism, it's not unusual to find large numbers of students who are oblivious to the fact that the Bible forbids premarital sex. Wait until marriage. And there are some practical reasons for that. For one thing, there's the risk of contracting an STD. 8,000 students every day are contracting sexually transmitted diseases. One out of every four teenage girls tonight is carrying a sexually transmitted disease. And for those students who are sexually active, one out of every two of them, one fifty percent of them will be, will contract an STD by the age of 25. There's also the danger of an unwanted pregnancy. Look, I know we're kind of, you know, in the tall weeds here, but girls, I just say to any young ladies in the congregation tonight, if you get pregnant or your boyfriend Stats, research says 80% of guys will abandon girls once they're pregnant. Guys, I'll say to you, if you get a girl pregnant, you're going to spend $50,000 to $250,000 in child support until the age of 18. And girls, as the mother, you most likely will end up dropping out of school, living on welfare at the poverty level, and never attaining the dreams that you had for your life. In addition, premarital sex damages your future marriage. 
tends to undermine the trust factor in the relationship because the lingering question is, if he did it with me, then who else has he done it with? Or if she did it with me, then who else has she done it with? I know it may sound like God's some kind of celestial killjoy or cosmic policeman who's come to rain on your parade and cramp your style and take away your fun. That's not it at all. Listen, for every negative command in the Bible, there are a couple of positive consequences. When God says, thou shalt not, what he's saying is, don't hurt yourself. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. I know something that you don't know. Trust me. I want to close, I want to just mention the best biblical example that parallels what you students are facing right now. It's found in the book of Daniel. You may recall that Daniel had been kidnapped as a teenager, taken hostage from his culture of biblical values and transported to Babylon, a nation that was the antithesis of everything that he'd been taught. His value system, his morals, his worldview, his godly heritage, his belief in God were all challenged. Not unlike today's college students. He was 800 miles from home, and Daniel 1.5 says that King Nebuchadnezzar had placed Daniel into a new education system with a curriculum designed to fill his mind with Babylonian philosophy, science, astrology, and religion. Daniel and his three friends were indoctrinated away from their traditional values with the ultimate goal of changing their loyalties. Verse 5 says of Daniel 1, the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and the wine which he drank. It was all the subtle goal of re-educating them away from their biblical roots and what their parents had taught them. In other words, they were being brainwashed. Almost immediately, Daniel and his friends were confronted with a temptation that on the surface seemed innocent enough. They were given food from the king's table. But that food had been sacrificed to idols. No doubt Daniel knew that such would be in violation of God's word, Exodus 34, 14, and Psalm 106, 28. In other words, Daniel had a knowledge of God's word. And in Daniel 1, 8, it says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He was being tempted to compromise his convictions. But he had the courage to just say no. And the courage to say no is predicated upon his knowledge of God's word. When it says that he purposed in his heart, students, that means he made an advanced decision that he was not going to compromise his moral standards based upon his knowledge of God's word. Many of you students tonight are going to find yourselves in compromising situations, especially for those of you that are going off to college, away from home with no accountability, more freedom than you've ever had. And if you don't have a knowledge of God's word and some spiritual disciplines in place to equip you with the internal fortitude that enables you to say no to tempting compromises, then you'll become another sad statistic among the millions of college students whose lives were derailed by enticing detours and lured them away from God, God's plan for their lives. Daniel's three teenage friends, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were put to another test when King Nebuchadnezzar had constructed a huge gold image. You remember this. And he demanded that everybody bow down and worship this false god, pledge their allegiance to this false god. And so we have tens of thousands bowing prostrate to the ground before this false god, except these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They conspicuously are standing up, refusing to go along with the popular crowd. Now, this was a big deal because listen to verses 13 through 18. Daniel 3. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these three men before God, before the king, rather. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and if you bow down and worship the gold image which I have made, good, good for you. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? These guys were teenagers, remember? Shagrat, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, and we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You remember the story how they were bound with their clothes, thrown into the furnace. The king ordered that the furnace be turned up seven times its normal heat. The fire leapt out and leaped out and killed the guys that had done that. And Jesus appeared in the furnace with these guys. Their clothes were not burned. Their hair was not singed. The smell of smoke was not on their bodies. Their allegiance to the true and living God were rewarded, was rewarded, and they were supernaturally delivered. The overwhelming percentage of college students today don't need the threat of a fiery furnace to abandon their worship of God. They sleep in, skip church Sunday after Sunday, until eventually it's no longer a part of their lives. And then throughout the week, they're exposed to an anti-God anti -God professor's, anti-God student body, an anti-God um, environment, curriculum. It's more than the average Christian student can handle. These three guys refused to bow and go along with the crowd. They had the courage to say no. One final example is in Daniel 6. Daniel became the object of a conspiracy required him to pray to no other god but to King Darius, or otherwise he'd be thrown into the den of lions. Now here's what's important to know. Daniel is now in his 80s. Chapter 1, where he said, I purposed in my heart that I would not defile myself. He was a teenager. Daniel 6, he's now an old man in his 80s. And he's remained faithful to God all of these decades, but as a senior adult, he finds himself in the greatest crisis of his life. He'd been spied upon by his conspirators. And the Bible says, chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. In other words, King Darius had signed this decree that anybody who does not pray to me for 30 days will be cast into the den of lions. This was their cancel culture. When Daniel knew that his death warrant had been signed, what does he do? The Bible says he went home, I quote, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, 
he knelt down and he prayed and gave thanks before his God and listen to what it says as was his custom since early days Daniel as a teenager as a young child had developed the habit of a daily quiet time praying to the Lord daily and now he's in his 80s he still has the habit of doing that and he was not about to allow some government to interfere with his communion with Almighty God now listen he could have gotten under his bed and prayed he could have closed his windows and prayed he could have gotten in his closet and prayed but instead what does he do he knew he was being spied upon he opened his windows as if in your face and prayed to his God and of course you know just like the fiery furnace God delivered Daniel from the lion's den by sending an angel to shut up the lion's mouth so this lesson goes back to Matthew 7 all right Daniel and his friends withstood the storms of the external challenges to their faith because their lives were internally built upon the rock of God's truth when Daniel and his friends were tempted to compromise their faith in the midst of a hostile, idolatrous environment, they stood against an avalanche of opposition because of what we looked at in Matthew chapter 7. The foundation of their lives was the rock of God's Word, not the shifting sands of cultural values that surrounded them. And by the way, King Darius and King Nebuchadnezzar, they both transferred their allegiance to the God of Daniel. God has always chosen to use teenagers in a great way. The spiritual awakenings in America's history have often been initiated and perpetuated by young people. Theologians believe that Jeremiah was between 13 and 16 years of age when God commissioned him to be a prophet to the nations. Josiah was 16 years old when he ushered in one of the greatest spiritual reformations in Israel's history. David was a teenager when he killed the giant Philistine Goliath and led a nation to victory. The Virgin Mary was a teenager when God set her aside to bring Jesus into the world. Joseph was a teenager at the age of 17 when God gave him a dream and eventually made him ruler of Egypt. So here's the question for all of us. Where in this congregation is there a Moses? who will determine to obey God regardless of the repercussions? Where is there a Joseph who will walk with God and implement political policies that reflect the will of God? Where are the teenagers like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refuse to bow their knees before the false gods of political correctness and will boldly declare our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we're not going to compromise? Where are the mothers like Hannah who will pray for their children and give them back to God for His service? Where are the young people like Samuel who pray to God throughout the night and honor their parents in the daytime? Where are the physicians like Luke whose concern for their patients goes beyond the physical but also concerned about their spiritual well-being? And where are the young people like Daniel who will make an advanced decision to stay true to God's Word, refuse to compromise even to the end of life's journey? One day God said to David, David, what you got in your hand? He said, just an ordinary slingshot. God said, give it to me and I'll use it. God used David to lead an entire nation to victory when he killed the giant Philistine Goliath. One day God said to Moses, he said, Mo, what you got in your hand? He said, just a dirty old stick. 
God said, give it to me and I'll use it. When surrendered to God, that dirty old stick became the rod of God and an entire nation was spared from defeat as they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. One day God said to Peter, Pete, what you got in your hand? He said, just a dirty old fishing net. God said, give it to me and I'll use it. When surrendered to God, after having fished all night in futility, catching nothing, but when surrendered to God, he caught 153 fish. One day God said to a little boy, he said, son, what you got in your hand? He said, just five loaves and two fish. God said, I can deal with that. Give it to me and I'll use it. And 5,000 men alone were fed with that small quantity. One day God said to another little boy, he said, son, what you got in your hand? He said, I just have a third grade education. God said, give it to me and I'll use it. And God used D.L. Moody to shake two continents for Jesus Christ. One day God said to little Billy, he said, Billy, what you got in your hand? He said, I'm just an ordinary farm boy who likes to play baseball. God said, give me your life and I'll use it. And God used Billy Graham to lead more people to Christ than anybody in the history of Christianity. And students, God is saying to some of you tonight, what do you have in your hand? The tendency for some is to say, God, I think you got the wrong person. I mean, I'm just an ordinary teenager who feels inferior. My parents are split up. My dad's an alcoholic. My mama has to work two jobs outside the home just to try to make financial ends meet. I've been abused, neglected, rejected, been made to feel like a nobody. Again, not even out of the starting blocks yet, and I'm defeated before I've even begun. And God says, what you talking about? I specialize in young people like you. Give me your life and watch me use it. Because I know the plans that I have toward you, says the Lord plans to prosper you and not harm you to give you a future and a hope for some of you tonight this is going to be a time to reaffirm your faith and a commitment to Christ for others of you not just here at the front but throughout the congregation this may be a defining moment for you this evening to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ where God becomes your heavenly father and you become his child but here's the thing, a person can incorporate all of the stuff we've talked about tonight into your life and still not know God personally and not go to heaven. What I'm saying is this, you can have a good attitude, a good work ethic, hang out with good friends, abstain from alcohol and drugs, maintain your moral purity, and still be the fool described in Matthew 7. You see, there must be a moment in time when you personally repent of your sin and receive Jesus into your life and choose to follow him and thus making his truth the foundation upon which your life is built. And I want to encourage many of you in just a moment to slip up out of your seats from the back to the front, stand in front of this altar area here, and I'd like the privilege of helping you make this decision in life, receiving Jesus into your life. Earlier in the message, I said there are no born losers, only born choosers. But the most important of all choices is what you do with Jesus. Because on every tombstone or every cemetery plot, there's a little dash. There's a little horizontal line illustrating time. And what you do with that dash is going to determine your eternal destiny. And I'll just say this in closing. You know, students, Jesus knows what it was like to feel rejection. He knows what it's like to feel lonely. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He knows what it's like to feel forsaken by his Father. 
He knows what it's like to feel betrayed. He knows what it's like to feel misunderstood. The emotions that you're experiencing tonight, Jesus has already been there. He's sat where you're sitting. He's walked in your shoes. Hebrews 4 says that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he is actually touched by the feeling of our infirmities. That is to say that God feels your pain tonight. So Christianity is not just about getting a person out of hell into heaven, but it's also about getting God out of heaven into that person. After one of our crusades, actually, was out in Arizona. A young man, his name was Joe. He had three brothers and three of his best friends. All six had committed suicide. He was in the congregation that night, and after the service... Many students were at the front giving their lives to Christ. After the service, he handed me this note. He said, I'm the happy-go-lucky popular guy at school who makes good grades and has a super girlfriend. And nobody has a clue, but nobody has a clue as to what I'm feeling. I'm filled with depression and guilt. I tried drugs. They did nothing for me. I went out and drank with my friends, but that only made me sick. I've tried everything I know to alleviate the pain. Nothing has worked. So last week, I sat in my bedroom with a 12-gauge shotgun pointed to my head and my finger on the trigger. At that moment, it was a phone call from my best friend that prevented me from doing it. My friends at school have no idea of my depressed suicidal tendencies. And then here's what he said. But he said, tonight, Jesus Christ came into my life. And I can tell he's already made a difference. Would you please tell other teenagers that Jesus is the answer? Just two days ago, for whatever reason, I was scrolling through the archives of my emails. And I came across this letter again I had been at a church in Texas and pastor was taking me back to the airport and this young man emailed this note to me dear Dr. Hale your ministry today at Georgetown Baptist Church saved my life earlier today I had planned to kill myself because I've been bullied and believed that that was the that the only way to end my life the only way to end it was to choose death over life. But your words this evening gave me an entirely different perspective on life. And by coming to Christ, I have realized that there will always be hope for better days ahead. What you told me tonight about Jesus Christ showed me a light that I've never seen before and gave me a new reason to continue living. I reached out to him when I found that I had no idea where he was and what he was doing today. So I, I didn't know if, he'd reach, if it would reach him or not. But I emailed him at the address that was his email address back then. And he emailed me back yesterday. And just he's living in San Antonio now and, and, uh, and just uh, still working and living for the Lord. So encouraging to know that it was not just an emotional whim of the moment. But today, he's still walking with God. And he said, what happened that night 
profoundly impacted my life and I thank you again so again guys the foundation to be wise or to be a fool the foundation of your life built upon truth and that begins by having Jesus Christ who says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father no one goes to heaven but through me so Jesus is the truth and when you have him in your life and you begin to build your life on him as your foundation the Bible says that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and so we're going to do something a little differently than what probably is typical protocol but we're going to extend that invitation for not just these students but for all of us sitting here tonight because I would be naive in thinking that everybody here has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and so I'm going to invite many of you doesn't mean that you're joining this particular church but I'm going to invite you God speak into your heart you say you know that's what I need I'm not a graduate I'm not a student you may say I'm a senior adult but this is what I need to do tonight it's not a decision for cowards it's not a decision for wimps it's going to take a bit of courage to get up out of your seat and come tonight and make this decision but what I would like to do is you stand here in front of me in front of this altar area just stand here like this and then I'm going to help you make this decision by leading you in the most important prayer that has ever come from your heart to the heart of God. Would you bow your heads with me, please, across the building for just a moment? You can come with a friend. You can come with a loved one. You can come by yourself. Our Father... May we hear tonight, right now in this moment, the voice of Jesus, the still small voice of your spirit speaking, compelling us to respond in obedience. And Lord, we pray you'd give courage and that the spirit of obedience would prevail in this place tonight. God, magnify your name in this time. We pray, Lord, for these students. We pray for their, the years that lie before them. Order their steps. Keep them on the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And our prayer is that tonight, before the final amen has sounded, that everybody here would know for sure their eternal destiny. Now with our heads bowed and eyes closed, here's just a question. You've heard it before probably, and it's not intended to embarrass anyone because nobody's looking around. All I'm asking is that you be honest in your response. How many of you would say, Steve, I know for sure. If I were to die today, I know for sure that I would go to heaven. Now if you're not sure about that, just don't raise your hand. All we're asking, just be honest. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to point anybody out. But with God being our witness, how many of you would say, I know for sure if I were to die today that I would go to heaven? If that's your testimony, would you indicate it, please, by the uplifted hand for just a moment? Just keep them up just for a moment. 
Thank you so much. You may lower your hands. Now, for those of you who did not raise your hand, I want to just talk to you just for a brief moment. First of all, to say thank you for being honest. We both know you could have faked it, and I would have known no differently. But by not raising your hand, you're saying, you know, if I were to die tonight, there's a strong possibility that I would never go, I would not go to heaven. The Bible says these things are written in order that you may know that you have eternal life. By not raising your hand, you're saying, I don't know that for sure. And yet God's word says you can know that for sure. So do you see, by not raising your hand, there's a disconnect between what God says and where you sit. And that disconnect is so urgently important that the Bible says now is the time. And today is the day of salvation. This is not something you want to put off or need to put off. So I pray God will give you the courage to slip out of your seat and come. You're standing beside somebody. They can slip aside for you. They'll come with you. But just come and stand here right here in front of the altar facing the platform. And then we'll have this time of decision together. Now, Father, your will be done. Ask your blessing that courage and obedience would not succumb to fear and disobedience. Let's all stand, please, and while the praise team leads us in this time of decision, We'll ask you to come from the back. We'll wait upon you right here from the front, you students. If you have a decision to make, just come stand right here. We'll just line up across here. We'll have this time together. Come on. I speak the name of Jesus over you. In your hurting, in your sorrow. I will ask my God to move I speak the name cause it's all that I can do He'll be the first one to come In desperation you come? To I seek heaven And I pray this for you I pray for your healing Circumstances would change I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name, I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Would you bow your heads with me, please, for just a moment, and while the instrument continues to softly play, and um. You know, it may very well be that while you're standing shoulder to shoulder with that friend or that loved one, even though you're in close physical proximity with each other, spiritually speaking, you might be eternities apart. What a beautiful opportunity this is right now, just to a simple gesture, it might be a whisper, 
touch of concern, just a loving touch, something to indicate to that person beside you that I'll go forward with you. If you need to make a decision for Christ tonight, let's go together. We'll walk forward together tonight. Just a moment, our time together this evening will be history, and we can't repeat this time. So if you're struggling with the decision right now, you know what God would have you to do. While the congregation prays and they close out this song, there's time for you to respond. Come on quickly right now. Would you come? Just come on quickly. Friend with friend, loved one with loved ones. Or you can come by yourself. Come on. In the name of all authority, declaring blessings, every promise. He is faithful to keep. I speak the name no grave could ever Circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee. In Jesus' name, I pray that a breakthrough it would happen today. I pray miracles over your life. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' just a moment now we're almost concluding our time together but here's the prayer Jesus says the scripture says that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and so I'm just going to lead us in this prayer this is the decision you need to make tonight in giving your life to Jesus receiving him as your personal Lord and Savior then would you offer this prayer to him there's no magic formula in these words God is looking at the attitude of your heart but from your heart to the heart of God you invite Christ right now through this prayer to come into your life dear Lord Jesus I need you I want you in my life Lord I have sinned against you I'm sorry please forgive me by your power and grace I now turn from my sin believing you died on that cross you took the punishment I deserved and Jesus, because you're alive right now, by faith I open to you the door to my life. Come on in, Lord Jesus. Please save me, now and forever. As best I know how, I choose to follow you from this day forth. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for cleansing my sin because I ask it in your strong name. Now while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I would just ask, how many of you would say, Steve, while you just now prayed, 
That prayer is what I just offered to the Lord. And I meant what I prayed. I offered that prayer to Jesus to come in and save me. And I chose to follow Him tonight. If that's what you did, no one's looking around, but just a hand up and down where you're standing, please. Just a hand up and down and say, I'm telling you, that's what I just now did. And I really did mean it. All right, would you be seated, please, for just a moment? Just one quick word about a resource over here that might be helpful to um, grandparents or parents. If you have a young person in your family, and this is not at all intended to commercialize uh, what's over here, but there is a book entitled War Torn Teens. War Torn Teens. And um, there's a reason we entitled it that, but I'm not going to take the time to explain it. But I want to just go through the chapters here quickly. Welcome to the war zone. Abuse. Innocent prisoners of war. Divorce. Caught in friendly fire. Forgive to be forgiven. Alcohol, the liquid enemy. Drugs, chemical warfare. Sex, the incognito enemy. Facing your giants. Porn, brainwashing with mind control. Peer pressure, going behind enemy lines when dreams are destroyed. Suicide, surrendering to the enemy. An army of nobodies. Profanity, language to die for. Cutting, wounds from the battle. Keys to claiming your destiny. And the cross, the war has been won. Um, there's a workbook that goes along with this book. And as you can tell, this really does hit upon the hot button issues facing so many students today in our generation. And so if you have grandchildren or teenagers in your family in some way, there are, I don't just have a bunch of books, but there's, there's, a, there's some of them over there, about maybe 10 or 12 of them that are there if you're interested. I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Otherwise, you'd have no way of knowing what, uh, what this book is about. Thank you for being here tonight. Who's going to close this out? In our, all right, Brother Jeremy, share with us tonight. God, our Father, we thank you for the words we've heard tonight, Lord, the truth that's been expounded upon. We pray, oh God, that now, Lord, you would affect the truth of your word in our hearts by your spirit. God, I pray for these graduates. I pray for everyone here tonight. God, that you sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, that, that you would reinforce in our own hearts what it is that we've heard. And when the rubber hits the road tomorrow and and the days ahead, God, may we be determined to spend that time with you and to, to build upon the foundation of the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for these graduates. I pray, Lord, that lean not on their own understanding, but in all their ways acknowledge you, and God, that you would direct their paths. Pray for your blessings upon them and for their families. God, give us grace as we leave this evening. In Jesus' name.